0: for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, April 5th, 2013. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said about God out there. And well, like I keep pointing out, those crazy things that are coming out regarding God are from people who call themselves Christians, but for whatever reason, um, their minds are not actually held captive to what God's Word clearly teaches. Uh, these are people who either have no clue how to ri- rightly handle God's Word, or worse, um, they are—they've they, been trained in bamboozlement, or they have purposely engaging in bamboozlement, and as a result of it, people are being led astray. Regarding Jesus Christ, Christianity, and all that type of stuff, and it's happening within Christian churches, but this is exactly what Jesus told us to expect that's why when uh, the disciples questioned Jesus in uh, matthew chapter twenty four yeah you know, remember the scene the uh, Jesus had just gone up to the Temple mountain the disciples were marveling at the temple complex, and uh, Jesus says the crazy thing like, you know, um, you know, if you see all these stones, not one will be left on another. The whole thing's going to come down. And he, he was right. Um, the, you know, the temple itself was practically scraped off the temple mount. And, um, yeah, it's, in fact, what's left of it is all just in a rubble heap off to one side of the, of the temple mount. And, um, You know, the disciples are dismayed at the thought. And, you know, and they say, When will this happen? What will be the sign of your uh, coming? Of, you know, of the end of the world kind of stuff. And Jesus, the first thing out of his mouth is, Do not be deceived. Many will come in my name. So (laughs) the place where Christians should be alert. The place where they should be looking, the place where they should be on really high alert, if you were to put it this way, for people who are deceivers, well, is within the Christian church, people coming in the name of Jesus. And all of that makes sense. And the reason why it makes sense um, is because Christianity is true, and the scriptures reveal that that God has a great adversary, the devil, and his legion of demons— And uh, there, well, Jesus says of the devil that he was a liar from the beginning. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. And so since all of that's true, what's the thing that we should expect Satan to be doing? Engaging in deception, bamboozlement, causing you to doubt what God's word says, and things of that nature. But for whatever reason, today's postmodern Christians, well, they've matured beyond all those you know those weird old world categories of you know right and wrong truth and error and you know stuff like that i mean it in instead they have these little clever phrases like well we engage in a humble hermeneutic you know uh, we, we all come together and we gather around the mocha machine and and well we try to have a conversation in community and and you know, and discuss these things so that you can experience truth in conversation within a community, it, with a humble hermeneutic. And we don't want you to come here and and tell us about certainty and things like that. No, no, no. We really believe that faith is well doubt. And see, and see, because to have faith is to doubt, and doubting is a good thing. And yet, you've heard people talk like this, haven't you? And unfortunately, you've probably heard them in church settings talking like that, haven't you? And that's the problem. None of that is actually what the Bible says. We can be sure. We can be certain. There is such a thing as sound biblical doctrine. Pastors and, you know, those who teach in the church are admonished in Scripture to only teach that and to rebuke those who contradict it. And so we do that really politically incorrect, such old school type of thing here at Fighting for the Faith. And it, unfortunately, it does have the tendency to, mm, well... It upset some people, you, know, you, 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 you really. <laughs> I should read some of these things. Uh, you should see my hate mail. Uh, that's uh, you. Know, it's it's well fantastic. That's all I can say. And you know I get quite a bit of it. Anyway, what we're going to do on today is a. Well, I don't know why I talk about that, but you know from time to time <laughs> I think it's important just to get that off my chest. That you should see <laughs> the things that I. Whew. Anyway, um, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Y'all familiar with the phrase uh, cognitive dissonance? Um, In fact, I probably should find an authoritative source to to give us a, a specific and authoritative definition of what cognitive dissonance is. Hang on a second. Let me look this up. I have my computer opened. Cognitive... Dissonance. Hey, it was one of the earliest things. Okay, cognitive dissonance is the feeling or discomfort when simultaneously holding two or more conflicting cognitions. <laughs> ah, yes, right off the bat. It, that's really easy to get. So it's that uh, feeling of discomfort when simultaneously holding two or more conflicting cognitions. Now, now here's the problem. This is that in, uh, in the American churches, now I can't speak to what's happening around the world, but in American evangelicalism, um, the the they they are experiencing a form of cognitive dissonance, but I have to I have to put a, like a little star or asterisk, you know, a footnote at that, because you know in the 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 definition of cognitive dissonance is the feeling of discomfort when simu- simultaneously holding two or uh, three or two or more conflicting cognitions. The problem is is that in, in American evangelicalism, there is no feeling of discomfort. Um, co- cognitive dissonance has become well. The norm, and as as a result of it, people are no longer uncomfortable with. In fact, they've they've made themselves quite at home um, in the uh, world of theological and doctrinal cognitive dissonance, and they're just doing crazy things. So, what we're going to do today is, <clears throat> you know, kind of give you an example of this. Well, I'm going to read. Uh, we're going to start off with a news story coming out of the RNS, that would be the Religion News Service, and uh, talking about how Americans love the Bible but don't read it. <laughs> cognitive. Dissonance. Then we're going to switch gears, do something a little bit crazy. Uh, I probably should play the standard warning today. Um, we have a uh, we have a William Tapley update. We have a Patricia King update, and I thought it would just really be fun if we had another Cindy Jacobs update because I spent a lot of time uh, basically showing uh, Mike and Cindy Jacobs to be completely biblically um, well uh, well completely out there. Um, I'm trying to be nice, but um, b- biblical buffoons would be the better way of putting it. But, um, and so I thought it'd be good to circle back and hear a little bit more from them because it, it took me so much time to, you clean up what they were doing wrong that, uh, you know, it's, it took up way, it was a really long first segment yesterday and we didn't, I didn't even get, you know, we only got four minutes into that video. So I thought, well, maybe we should give them a little bit more context, give them the opportunity to teach a little bit more. And uh, once we're done with that, we'll take our second break. And then today we're going to end up our week of good Easter sermons um with just three good Easter sermons, you know from assorted pastors and uh you know and, and you know, they're from all over the place actually. Um, and they're picked each of them for different uh, very specific different reasons. And what you're gonna know in notice in this mix, very humble, soft spoken, not great orators in that see that's the thing um this last group well, well I you know I hate to say that <laughs> I, I should make one caveat um and that's Brian Wolfmuller Brian Wolfmuller uh, is, he's he's a he's a, actually a really good speaker um but uh, the other two um uh, there, are there's nothing flashy showy or even great in the rate oration and that's the reason why I picked the the, the other two but uh Uh, Brian Wolfmuller's sermon, by the way, (laughs) his Easter sermon is entitled, He's Out and He's After You. (laughs) I I thought it was a great name for that sermon. Anyway, so uh, that's what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable, make yourself at home. um, Because you're going to, well, be hearing some pretty crazy things on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I do think it's also important today that we play our standard warning. Uh, to get us started. So with that, here's our warning, just so that you don't accidentally kill yourself while listening to today's episode of Fighting for the Faith.
1: Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity for sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain.
0: Okay, starting off today, um, from the Religion News Service, the headline reads: Poll says Americans love the Bible but don't read it much. <laughs> to, to which I'd say, I could have told you that. Uh, the religious uh, news service writes, or the Religion News Service writes, uh, more than half of Americans think the Bible has too little influence on a culture they see in moral decline. Yet only one in five Americans read the Bible on a regular basis according to a new survey. Yeah, remember what I said, cognitive dissonance. I think the Bible's really important, yeah. You know, I think, oh man, we're experiencing all kinds of moral decline out there. And you, I mean, take a look at what's happening. I mean, you, you got the gay thing, you know, the people shooting each other all over the place. Yeah, the country's, and I think the Bible is really, really, really important. So do you read it? Um, No, 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 I don't read it. No, I – yeah, Mm mm-hmm, yeah. What, What would you call that? I mean I'm being polite I think by calling it cognitive dissonance, but I think that this is kind of indicative of how Americans are. They really talk a good game, don't they? Not so much on the follow through. So let's see here. So, um, yet only one in five, that would be 20% of Americans, read the Bible on a regular basis, according to a new survey. More than three quarters of Americans, uh, 77%, think the nation's morality is headed downhill, according to a new survey from the American Bible Society. The survey showed the Bible is still firmly rooted in American soil. Define the (laughs) phrase firmly rooted. If no one's reading it, it's not firmly rooted. 88% of respondents said that they own a Bible. 80% think the Bible is sacred. 61% wish they read the Bible more. And the average household has 4.1 Bibles. Mm Mm-hmm. If the, if the Bible is so commonplace in America, wouldn't its moral teachings counteract the downward trend? Almost a third of respondents said moral decline was a result of people not reading the Bible, while 29% cited negative influence of America and 1 in 4 cited corporate corruption. Doug Birdsall, the president of the American Bible Society, said he sees a reason for why the Bible isn't connecting with people. Quote, I see the problem as analogous to obesity in America. We have an awful lot of people who realize they're overweight, but they don't follow a diet, Birdsall says. Um, People realize the Bible has values that would help us in our spiritual health, but they just don't read it. If they do read it, the majority, 57%, only read their Bibles four times a year or less. Listen to that again. The majority of people only read their Bibles four times a year or less. Only 26% of Americans said they read their Bible on a regular basis, that being four or more times a week. Hmm. Now, I'm convinced that the Bible itself has the answers to the moral decline that we're experiencing in the United States, not because, uh, necessarily because it has morals in it, although it does, um, but because the Bible teaches us what the real root problem is for our moral decline, and that would be our own sinful natures. None of us are good. By nature, we're all born dead in trespasses and sins and hostile to God. We're born at war with God. We aren't good people. And that the solution to this problem, which, by the way, will land you in hell if you persist in this till your death, um, the solution to this is repentance and faith and trust in God for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance and belief in In Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. When that occurs through the preaching of Christ, somebody is given faith, they're regenerated, they're born again or born from above, as John says in John chapter 3, and they are indwelled with the Holy Spirit and begin to then combat their own sinful flesh, the temptations of the devil and the world, and begin to bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. That's the idea. So the Bible definitely has the solution. But 50, the majority, 57% only read their Bibles four times a year. Now think about this for a second, okay? The seeker-driven guys, okay, you know, the Perry Nobles, the Rick Warrens, the Bill Hybels, the Stephen Furticks, and, and the Mark Beasons, and, you know, those guys, I mean, they are, they basically don't teach God's Word in context, in any meaningful form of in-depth biblical preaching or teaching. They basically strip-mine the Bible for life tips and principles that you can apply to your life to help you overcome, you know, those suburbanite stresses, you know my job isn 't so good i 'm not, I'm not happy with my employer and i wish, I wish I had more influence my you know, my wife and I are struggling the kids are badly behaved the dog i can 't train the dog to do good tricks and you know and you know, things you know like that and so they strip mine the bible to give you know to give you life tips and you know how to you know find your purpose and have better behaved children and how to you know, basically employ a time management system and how to properly balance your budget. And things like that. Now, of course, you point out to these so-called pastors that you're not teaching the Bible in depth. You're not teaching, this is ridiculous. How do you call that biblical preaching? And they'll say, don't you expect me to feed Christ's sheep? Everybody here needs to learn how to become a self-feeder. Uh-huh. So I would say what's going on in so many of the uh, seeker-driven megachurches is actually compounding the problem and, well, how do you put it this way, contributing to the moral decline of America. Because 57% of, of, of Americans only read their Bibles four times a year or less, which means if they were want to wander into a seeker-driven megachurch, they're not going to hear God's Word, and they're not going to go home and read their Bible. Now do you begin to see the importance of biblical preaching Yeah, it's not that I should have to defend this. I mean, Christ's Word commands pastors to preach the Word. But apparently, the seeker-driven guys claim that they're getting direct revelation from God that somehow excludes them. And so, you know, from having to actually do that, you know, preach God's Word in context, oh, no way, that would drive people away, and then we wouldn't have a megachurch. Anyway, so yeah, this is quite the uh, the problem that we have going on here, and this poll is rather, well... Interesting, And I would point to guys like William Tapley and Patricia King and Cindy Jacobs and others as symptoms of the overall problem. Because if, if people who call themselves Christians were to actually wake up and were to actually crack open that book and read it, and I mean really read it, read it to understand it. Read it to really meditate on it in in not in the goofy uh spiritual experience kind of way, but really chew on what it says, really learn what what the Bible reveals regarding doctrine, you know what is the Christian faith, all of that that if you if they were to do that you know in mass, well Patricia King, she'd be done, Cindy Jacobs and Mike Jacobs their their money would dry up so fast it wouldn't even be funny they serious i mean if if true repentance revival style if you know you kind of think really old school revival here in mass people repented the the false teachers they'd be gone in a week rick warren and saddleback would be so 2001 it's not even funny but because people don't read their bibles guys like that not only survive they thrive and that is a problem a big big problem moving along yeah that's right it's um a william tapley
2: update remember
0: we're dealing with cognitive dissonance today dissonance sorry
3: Right? It's the end of the world
0: as we know it.
3: It's the end of the world
0: as we know it. It's the end of the world as we
3: know it. it. And I feel fine.
4: Boom,
0: boom, boom. Yeah, that's right. Our William Tampley, third eagle of the apocalypse, co-prophet of the end times update music what uh, william, uh, william tapley this guy <laughs> i sometimes don't know what to do with him but uh, this he had well <laughs> i can't even explain it the name of the video is entitled 44 is a lucky number and it's in quotes which means it's not that's not what he's really saying he's really saying that it's not a lucky number and um of course he's got some sports video clip in here and I can't even describe what you're about to hear. Hang on to your hats. Here's William Tapley explaining how, quote, 44 is a lucky number, unquote, which I think means that it's not. Here we go.
5: Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the third eagle of the apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times. Well, all this past month, the false prophets on YouTube have been speculating that Barack Obama would go to Israel to sign some kind of a peace treaty. Oh, man.
0: <laughs> the irony is not lost on me. That's right. <laughs> William Tapley has thrown down. He, he's you're basically calling out and exposing the false prophets on YouTube. <gasps> this is the guy who, was it last year? Prophesied that the Super Bowl wasn't going to happen? <laughs> He's calling other people false prophets. Hi. Or
5: to confirm a covenant as prophesied in the Bible. And of course they are assuming that he is the Antichrist. And what they don't seem to understand is that before the Antichrist comes the leopard as found in Daniel 7 verse number 6. And none of them are telling you Who the leopard is because Barack Obama fulfills that prophecy and I'm the only one on YouTube who is explaining this
0: amazing fact no 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 you are not the only person on YouTube you are the only person on the entire planet who sees any of this stuff
5: and how does our Lord tell us how does he confirm that Obama is the leopard and he does this through numerology And just a few days ago, (laughs) Barack Obama confirmed that he is number 44 in Bible
0: prophecy. How did he do that? Take a look at this short clip. Okay.
6: And what do we got here? Jersey here. That's a good looking jersey.
0: Okay, hang on. This is footage at the White House. I got to look something up. Uh, Stanley Cup winners 2013. Um. Uh, Who won the... Uh, I don't know. The video shows Obama meeting with a... Uh, looks like a hockey team because that's the Stanley Cup. And they gave Obama a jersey number 44. I, I'm not sure who the team is because I don't follow hockey. <laughs>
6: 44. It's a lucky number. All right, thank you.
0: So there you got Obama saying that 44 is a lucky number. Okay.
5: I'm not that sure that 44 is such a lucky number for Barack Obama. Yes, he is our 44th president. Yes, he was born on August the 4th. He was elected the first time on November the 4th. But he is also the leopard that has four heads and four wings, as we see in Daniel 7, verse number (laughs) 6.
0: Really? Obama has four heads? (laughs) Okay. Um, that would take some Photoshop work to make that happen, but okay. After this, I beheld, and
5: lo, another like a leopard. Now, Obama is symbolized in this passage by a leopard, because a leopard is both black and white, just like the racial heritage of Barack Obama.
0: Leopards, their base color isn't white. It's kind of like a golden color. And it had
5: up on it four wings as of a fowl, and the beast had four heads. Now, the four wings and the four wings symbolize that Obama is the 44th president. And dominion was given to this beast. And of course, dominion means that this beast is the president of the United
0: States. And no, dominion means that it was given authority or power
5: and the leader of the free world. But Daniel is not the only place where we find Barack Obama. He is also the lion in Jeremiah 50, verse number 44. Please.
0: Now now I'm all confused. So isn't there a a saying the leopard can't change its spots? You've changed the spots of this leopard and turned him into a lion. Uh
5: Note that first number behold, he shall come up like a lion from the swelling of the Jordan." Now, this would indicate south of Jerusalem, and I believe this points to Barack Obama, whose forebears came from Africa, to the strong and the beautiful. Now, the strong and the beautiful refers to the United States. Some Bibles translate this as the habitation of a straw.
0: Now, what's the problem here? Um, I continually point out that there's lots of problems with Louie and Tapley. It's really easy to spot with him, but here's kind of the problem. Now, remember, that we led off with the story about the fact that people don't read their Bibles. Now, in his particular case, it's clear he's making an effort to read his Bible. What's the problem? Answer. He's reading his Bible as if it's a code book. Okay? That he... He's basically seeing it as one really large eschatological Sudoku puzzle. And how he's spending his time, rather than reading the stories and understanding them for what they really teach, he's obsessed with the end times and trying to figure out the 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 numbers and the codes and he's seeing things in these passages that aren't there but by looking for the things that are not there he's completely oblivious to what's in front of his face and this is no way to read your bible in fact I know it's really easy and tempting and to you know to do something like this and there's something morbid in the, as far as the fascination of trying to crack eschatological codes and yeah there's some people out there who've made their entire life career about you know have, trying to figure out how this particular news story fits into this particular eschatological schema and you know this passage if it symbolizes this thing or that thing and yeah um this is this is Bible study poorly spent bible study poorly spent now that 's not to say that you should ignore the biblical passages that talk about eschatology. No, we are to read them, but understand this that many of the mysteries that are hidden in you know in, in these p- word pictures of eschatology they're not easy to understand. And I think some of this stuff isn't even going to make any sense until the day draws really close. And then everyone will go,
3: oh, okay.
0: We're to be busy with proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, preaching the word and teaching that which accords with sound doctrine. Which means we need to read the Bible the way the Bible is supposed to be read. For instance, I mean, this is really not that hard. Um, When you read a history... It's to be understood as a history. When you read a letter, read it like it's a letter. There's inf- there's didactic teaching and information and stuff like that. And the there there is apocalyptic literature in Scripture, but it comprises a small percentage of Scripture, w- which means I think proportionally you should you know take a look at the percentages there, and you know and spend about as much time in eschatology as the Bible spends in it. Does that make sense? So, when you, when you major in the minors, and then you stop looking at what the text says, but trying to divine some hidden meaning behind the text, well, you completely lose what the Bible actually says, and, well, make yourself kind of, well, <clears throat> useless when it comes to the real mission of the church. Tell the world of Jesus Christ, the virgin-born Son of God, crucified, for our sins raised again on the third day for our justification to call people to repent and trust in him for he is merciful and forgiving and he will pardon people because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. And he became sin. He, he became our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. This is good news that we have to proclaim, but you know, What William Tapley has fallen into is what I would consider a classic deception of the devil. Getting people to, quote, read their Bibles while actually ignoring what it says. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back. We have a, a Patricia King update and uh, some leftovers from yesterday's Cindy Jacobs update. Don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
5: Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
2: presents
7: Church Day Select Hello, my name is Joe Losin and I want to tell you about my latest book Every Day is Friday I really don't know why I wrote this one though I was trying to come up with some ideas, and it turns out, I don't have any. So that's when I started thinking of things people really liked. I was thinking of all sorts of stuff, but none of the things I was thinking were really working. My first title was, "Every Day is Marshmallow Covered Rainbows, but my mama told me it stunk. And then I had one of those, ideas, because somebody on the TV said they like Friday. I mean, what's not to like about Friday? There's a party every night. If your boss isn't all strict and stuff, you can be casual at work. And they's always having that 25 cent wing night down at Bubba Wings. Um, Tuesdays. Turns out there are some people who don't seem to like the whole everyday is Friday thing. And have made some not so nice remarks. They keep on saying things like, But Saturday is so much better. With everyday being Friday, I don't ever get to sleep in or have a day off. Well, we here at Lakewood have a name for these kinds of people, and they are close minded haters. Hey, that's my line! Uh, security, get this crazy person out of here. I'll show you who's crazy!
4: You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. <laughs> out. the spring and summer travel seasons are
0: just around the corner and the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare hotel and rental car than you need to That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap... That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. If you're not reading your Bible, you're really opening yourself up to the attacks of the devil. And if you're reading it and not paying attention to what it says but trying to crack codes, same thing. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, FightingForTheFaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month, that's it, to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So, um, have you ever stopped to think that you are surrounded by realms of glory? Well, if not, (laughs) have I got a surprise for you? Patricia King is here to discuss realms of glory
8: did you know that there's realms of glory all around you you might be asking well what is the glory anyways well just the basic definition is the glory is the fullness of all that god is and all that he has and so everything in the world around us is a knowledge.
0: um where'd you get that definition I'm not familiar with that definition. Hang on a second. Let me back this up and see where she, what is she
8: talking about here? The basic definition is the glory is the fullness of all that God is and all that he has. And so everything in the world around us, it says the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, so the glory is here. But a lot of times we're not aware of it.
0: <laughs> Notice that the sentence you quoted, and I'm not even sure what passage you quoted it from. That the glory will cover the earth. Um, that was a future tense verb there. Um, do you think that might have something to do with that? That.
8: Because God created the world, he said, let there be. And so everything has the essence of his life inside of it. If you look at a plant, it's got the essence of God's life inside of it. But you might... This almost
0: sounds like pantheism.
8: ...have your spiritual eyes open to see it or your senses open to, to feel it. But you can stir up your senses, just becoming aware of that.
0: No, I don't need my senses stirred up. Whenever that happens, my wife tells me to settle down.
8: Oh, God, you're here. Do you know that the Bible says that angelic glory is all around you? Because the Bible says that that his angels encamp around the righteous. And if you know... Yeah,
0: G- yeah, wow, yeah.
8: Jesus, as your Savior and Lord, you're the righteous. Therefore, there's angels all around you. Well, angels have been in the presence of the Lord for thousands of years, and they carry the essence of God's fragrance. They have angelic glory.
0: The, the essence of God's fragrance. Can you put that in a bottle and sell it at like, you know, Macy's or something? What are you talking about?
8: All different kinds of glory. There's, you know, the glory of peace, the glory of love, the glory of joy, the glory of God's of, of God's grace, you know, the glory of healing. There's healing glory. There's, there's uh, the glory of his prosperity and abundance.
0: Where are you getting this from?
8: Every aspect of God contains glory or the copiousness, the bigness of, of who he is.
0: The, <laughs> contains the bigness of who he is. Um, what's the point of having a Bible if we're not going to actually open it up and study? How is this Christian doctrine? So, I I wonder if Patricia King is one of these people who only reads her Bible like four times a year.
8: God wants you. And a lot of times Christians don't understand the glory realm and therefore they don't, they don't. Well,
0: if they read their Bible, I'm sure they would have everything they need. And you haven't quoted a single passage yet and all you've done is wax on about Glory, you know, makes me wonder if her theology should be called gloryism.
8: Brace it. They don't discover it. They don't encounter it. But God wants you to discover this. Reality.
0: You know, I want to back that up. I want to point this little technique out here. Um, see, here, this is a this is a particularly nuanced and subtle deception technique. And it, the technique basically is designed to create doubt in your mind as to whether or not you are a Christian. So let me back this up just a little bit, and then I'll point out the what she says and explain to you how it's a deception A deception technique. Here we go.
8: That's the bigness of, of who he is. So God wants you, and a lot of times Christians don't understand the glory realm, and therefore they don't they don't embrace it, they don't discover it, they don't encounter it
0: see a lot of times Christians don't understand the glory realm so they don't embrace it they don't discover it they don't encounter it they don't experience it wow see if you attend a well you know one of those normal churches you know you go to church every Sunday the pastor opens up God's word and he preaches from the Bible Sunday after Sunday after Sunday faithfully preaches Christ from every passage of Scripture. You have the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis or every few weeks. And, you know, there's fantastic hymns and songs that are sung depending on what time of the year it is. And then when the next year rolls around, it's it's similar to, the, uh, to what it was last year. Study in God's Word, preaching and proclamation, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, Christ from every page of Scripture— well, when somebody does that, you know what 's going to happen is that a sound orthodox teacher of god 's word a pastor who's faithful to the teaching of the word of God uh, the um, well, the people in the congregation aren't going to experience or discover or encounter the glory realm why because god 's word doesn 't teach it so here this is this is a technique that 's similar to what the devil does. You know, think back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, the devil's first attack was to create doubt in the mind of Eve. And he does this by saying, did God really say? So that's the same technique that Patricia King is using. Oh, well, yeah, a lot of Christians out there, they don't even know this, and they don't get to discover it. And you go, "I've, ah, I've never experienced the glory realm. I didn't even know Christians were supposed to. You see, as soon as that happens in your mind, Patricia King has you. Because now you you, you got you to gotta find out what you've been missing. Maybe your pastor's been holding, holding out on you. Maybe he hasn't been teaching you the whole truth. Maybe he's suppressing information. And Patricia King, well, she's your buddy because she's going to tell you the things your pastor's never told you before. How you can encounter the glory realm. That's how this technique works. When you hear... People like a Patricia King or a Todd Bentley or whatever waxing on about how, oh, there's so many Christians out there that, oh, those poor, those poor Christians, they just don't know about this other stuff.
8: Mm-hmm. That's designed to hook you. It's a deception technique. We continue. But God wants you to discover this realm. Because when you get to understand this invisible realm of the essence of God that's around you.
0: When you get to understand this invisible realm of the essence. Uh-huh, well, if God wanted me to encounter the invisible realm of the essence of God, don't you think he would have explained that to me clearly and unambiguously in his written word?
8: It's a just a realm that's around you that you get to live in. Then you can start receiving of that realm. If you see it, you can have it. Ah. Now, in our glory school teaching, we teach believers how to engage in that. I, I was visited by the Holy Spirit for thirty days.
0: Wow! Really? Did you put him up in your guest room?
8: And every day he opened up the scriptures. He said, "I want to show you that all of the glory of God is available to every believer." And he started unpacking through the scriptures, showing me foundational truths. So, what does the Holy Spirit look like? Of how we stay with you for thirty days. Of access and entrance into heavenly glory now
0: notice this is kind of the second half of the, uh, the the this deception technique first, she creates doubt in your mind as to whether or not you're getting the whole goods regarding Christianity and then well, what does she just say? she had a thirty day personalized encounter with God the Holy Spirit, and God laid this all out for her. so everything she 's teaching you is directly from God the Holy Spirit. That explains why it's not in the Bible, right? Because well, God specially revealed this to Patricia. And it's available for you in her glory school. You can't get this in the Bible. You can't get it anywhere. But see, it's so sad, you Christians out there. Oh, it's so sad. It, you're just not having these glory encounters of the invisible essence of, you know, the bigness of God thing. Because, yeah, you, know, you you don't even know about it. The reason you don't know about it is cuz well, God, the Holy Spirit, came and directly revealed this to Patricia in a 30-day encounter. He stayed in her guest room and everything. It was kind of cool.
8: Divine glory, angelic glory, provisional glory. And so we now have the tools because of the insights that he gave us through the Scripture. Because everything has been given through the blood of Christ. You have access into the glory realm.
0: And now, now she's making references to the Bible and the blood of Christ. This is what it means to take God's name in vain. She's now hijacking biblical concepts and terms to try to basically create a veneer, you know, some kind of a facade that all of this, oh, yeah, this is biblical teaching. No, it isn't.
8: You are invited into the glory realm. God wants you in that glory realm. He wants you to enjoy every. If God
0: wanted me in the glory realm and wanted me to enjoy it, then He would have clearly explained that in unambiguous terms in Scripture. And Christians would have believed and taught this for the last two millennia.
8: Single bit of it. So. In the Glory School, and in, in fact, if you don't have it, or if you haven't gone to a Glory School yet,
0: yeah, I have it. Listen to it, and wow, uh, <clears throat> yeah. So the rest of this is pretty much a commercial for Patricia King's Glory School, and we all know where that's going to go. So you, you catch the technique. That's the technique: create doubt in your mind that you, well that you're getting the whole story regarding Christianity, and then basically. Create the impression that you've got an inside track with God and that you are authoritative in everything you're saying because God has personally met with you. And all of this is deception. It's a trick of the devil. And who are the ones most susceptible to this type of deception? People who are not reading their Bibles and yet call themselves Christians. The ones who say, Oh, the Bible, it's really important. Super de duper important. Oh yeah, I I think that the America is experiencing moral decline like you wouldn't believe. And I think the culprit is that people are not being influenced by the good teaching of God's good book, the Bible. Well wow, wow that's a great answer. And um do you read your Bible? <sighs> Um, yeah, I, hmm, sometimes? Well, really? well, how often? You know, about four times a year or less. Uh-huh. Yeah, and yet it's God's word. It is God's word. If you know God's word, sound biblical doctrine, what the Bible says in context, you won't be deceived by people like Patricia King and others. Because God's word will be fixed in your mind and guard you from, well, these types of loony jobs. Moving along.
1: Chief Lane, what do you want to do tonight?
6: The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky
0: and the Brain Yes,
6: Pinky and the Brain One is
0: a genius The other's insane The laboratory mice The team has this sliced.
9: The Pinky Their pinky and the brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done, their plan
0: will be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. They'll take over the world.
6: The pinky and the brain, yes, pinky and the brain. The twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove
9: their mousy worth, they'll overflow the earth. The pinky, the pinky and the brain, 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 brain,
0: brain. Ah. <laughs> Yeah, I nailed it this time. <laughs> okay, so yeah, after yesterday's installment of, um, mm, Cindy and Mike Jacobs, I thought it would be, uh, well, appropriate if we circle back and try to get a little bit more context of this teaching that they're trying to bring to us about dealing with strongholds. So I'm going to back up the audio a little bit from yesterday so that we can maintain context here and kind of pick up where we left off and see if you can make heads or tails of this dealing with strongholds teaching which, for whatever reason, has turned into a 30-minute-long television program that's airing around the the world. Here's um, uh, Cindy and Mike Jacobs. ...about what you
9: were before and who you are today. And the challenge is, if you believe the things of the past, and you'll stay in the things of the past, even though you have this new promise and God wants to move you from a mindset of the past to the future that he has created for you yeah
1: and so you know in the book of ephesians it's an incredible incredible manual yeah, it's for like a yeah for blessing for overcoming the power of dark the powers of darkness that hate
0: uh, the, what? book of ephesians is a primer for overcoming the forces of the power of darkness
1: you Satan hates you he wants to destroy you he is called the destroyer he is the one that comes down and wants to defeat you but the good news is you don't have to be defeated mm-hmm.
0: the... Uh, isn't the good news that Christ defeated the devil on the cross by dying and rising again I thought that's where Satan was defeated
1: good news is God has not called you to defeat God has called you to blessing God has not called you to be overcome he's called you to be an overcomer these are contrast in the word of God
0: Really, where can you show me those passages in context?
1: And so, you know, as you get your relationships right—husbands and wives and and children—and
0: so, yeah, if you want to be an overcomer, you got to get your relationships right. Because if they're not right, yeah, you're 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 in trouble.
1: Get under authority and get under spiritual authority.
0: Get under authority. Get under spiritual authority. You know, like under Cindy and Mike's Jacob's spiritual authority i don't think they have any
1: what uh, happens is i call it you close the holes in your armor Mm -hmm. you know one time mike i had a vision did you catch
0: that i call it uh, you close the holes in your armor i gotta back this up just a few seconds um this is just too precious
1: in the word of god And so, you know, as you get your relationships right, husbands and wives and children and get under authority and get under spiritual authority, what happens is I call it, you close the holes in your armor. Mm -hmm. You know, one time, Mike, I had a vision and in this. Uh,
0: Yeah, man. So here we go again. So uh, what's Cindy Jacobs authority? Well, she has direct visions from God. You know, because this, what this next part is, well, it's not in the Bible, but she calls this closing up the holes in your armor. But, but she had a vision, and that's just as good as the Bible
1: vision. I saw Christians and they were saying, I have the armor of God and I'm protected, but I saw they had big holes in their armor and Satan was shooting his fiery darts right into those holes Ooh. and they were being destroyed. Why? Because those were openings. Those were places where they had broken relationships, where they weren't obeying the word Ooh. of God.
0: So if you have broken relationships And you're not obeying the word of God. Well, there's holes in your armor and Satan's going to get you. Oh, man. And all of this based not on an actual passage of scripture, but on a vision that Cindy Jacobs had. Yeah, it's not much better than yesterday's. And
1: they were defeated because of that.
0: So even if I
9: have the promises of God.
0: Now, here's her husband exegeting Cindy's vision.
1: Mm-hmm.
9: If I allow these holes in my mm-hmm. armor, then you're saying Satan has a legal right to hit hit me with fiery darts.
1: That's right. That's right. Because what happens?
0: Satan has a legal dart. Uh, sorry, a legal right to hit me with fiery darts if I have holes in my armor. <laughs> you just want to take your head and pound it against something solid, you know, like a wall or you know a brick building or something like that, or maybe a block of cement. might feel better after that um wow this is complete and utter nonsense based upon a vision that she had of course so because she calls this patching up the holes in your armor because you know don't you think if god the holy spirit really wanted us to understand this importance of patching up the holes in our armor he would have inspired the apostles to write this down
1: happens is these create an open place that satan can come in and accuse you Mm. an open place where he can sabotage you the word of god is such a protection for us Mm. if we do the work do the words we can work the words
0: yes if we do the words we can work the words huh where is that in the bible I mean, that's so powerful. Do no, it's so ridiculous
1: what God says, and everything will work out for us.
0: And- well, you're not doing what He says, okay? Number one, uh, you should not be teaching uh, men, two, um, <laughs> you ain't a real prophet, you're a false prophet according to God's own word, and even if you could teach in the church, um. You don't teach sound doctrine, you teach false doctrine. So you don't even do the words. You get what I'm saying?
1: And so when I learned this, I began to make relationships right. I called people on the phone. If there was any odds against any, or, you know, the Bible says in Matthew 5, if you bring your gift to the altar and you remember that somebody has something against you.
9: Oh, You mean not if you have something against somebody, but if someone has something against you? Yeah,
1: if you realize that they're upset at you. I mean, so in other words,
0: (laughs) (laughs) did you detect a hint of condescension in, in her husband's voice there?
1: as far as you can Mm -hmm. be right with everyone and then it says if you know if you'll make it right then god will accept your offering you know even sometimes we're tithing and we wonder what is happening you know but the point is we had breaches
0: (laughs) you're tithing you're wondering what's happening notice what (laughs) what the expectation is there i'm writing the check where's the miracles god Uh uh-huh
1: in relationships Mm -hmm. and because of these breaches satan has a foothold
0: oh no gasp whatever will we do there's a breach in one of my relationships and now satan has the legal right to shoot at the hole in my armor created by the breach what what am i gonna do this is just horrible and you know we continue
1: so, you have to go make it right, make things right, and so once you 've done everything you can do, I mean, maybe the person you go to and you try to reconcile doesn 't want to reconcile with you, but the point is you become right with God mm-hmm. then you become the- no
0: i I thought I became right with God by christ 's death and on the cross and through his shed blood, where I was reconciled to God, I thought that 's where I was made right with God hmm.
1: The armor, you know, your armor becomes whole. You yeah. are protected.
0: Yeah, so as soon as, you know, you patch things up with your estranged whomever, it could be, you know, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, mother-in-law, soon, as soon as you, you know, get those things patched up, then what will happen is, is you won't have a hole in your armor anymore because the Bible teaches this like nowhere.
1: You know, under God's protection. And so then it says, in Ephesians 16, Finally, my brethren, after you do all these things, relationships are right, relationships are in order.
0: After you do all these things, do, 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 law, 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 law. Uh-huh. And and, and the, the funny little thing is, is that if, if you're honest with yourself, even on your best day, you know you're guilty of hell. On your best best day. In fact, our scripture describes our, sin, our our good works, not our evil deeds, our good works. Our righteous deeds. It describes them as filthy menstrual rags. You see, real biblical Christianity teaches that not just your sins can send you to hell. Your good works can send you to hell too, cuz they're still absolutely soiled with sin. We continue.
1: You have fulfilled what the Book of Ephesians says. After that, be strong. And why does it say be strong? Because you can be. I have a tendency to be weak. Mm-hmm. In other words,
0: yeah, this is some real rocket science here.
1: Satan is called in Scripture the one who weakened the nations. And so what does he want to do? He wants to make you defeated. He wants you to feel weak. He wants you... I think
0: he wants to send me to hell.
1: To feel depressed in your mind. He wants you to feel hopeless. But the point is, the word of God is full of precious promises.
0: I'm sure it is. In fact, I know for a fact it is because I read it. And because I read it, I know that what you're saying doesn't even closely jive with what Ephesians really says in
1: context. That says, be strong. Remember, God said to to Joshua over and over prophetically when he was going to go into the promised land, be strong in the Lord and right. the power of his mind. So sometimes you need someone to come along, like we're doing on God Knows Today, and admonish you, yeah. be strong. Be strong. Stir yourself up.
0: Yeah, just get get going. stir, just, Come on, come on, be strong. Go on.
1: Realize God's word is true, and this is what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, God's word
0: is true. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, Scripture tells us. Not just be strong, it's be strong in the Lord.
1: You know, really, in a way, we are engaging the enemy of your soul through truth. We are...
0: (laughs) Actually, the irony here, (laughs) again, not lost on me, is that Cindy Jacobs is engaging my soul on behalf of the enemy with lies, because she's not speaking the truth. I don't even think she knows the truth. If we were to like, you know, bring the truth and like, you know, dress it up and introduce her to the truth, she wouldn't recognize the truth. She,
1: what are you again? You know, speaking what God's word says, yeah. and when you start speaking God's word,
0: she's starting to yell. This this must be the important part.
1: Then the. Power power of darkness is shattered. Hebrews says the word of God is alive and powerful. Y-
0: yeah, it is. And did you notice the fact that your whole little teaching regarding patching up the holes in your armor nowhere appeared in God's word?
1: And sharper than any two-edged sword.
9: And you'd have to ask then, Cindy, well, if his word is sharper than any two-edged sword... A sword, particularly a two-edged sword, is a sword for combat. Mm-hmm, yeah.
0: So, you know, we had talked. To- <laughs> no, really, I thought it was for like opening letters. You know, maybe going out and whacking weeds or something. <laughs> I didn't know that there was like you know domestic uses for swords. <laughs>
9: talked about in past episodes, you know, like that, that, uh, you know, you're going to come under attack. Everyone comes Mm -hmm. under attack.
0: Part of it. Yeah. Actually this episode of your, in like every other episode of God knows this actually would qualify as an attack from the devil against my very soul.
9: It has to do with training you for your destiny. Mm -hmm. Part of it has to do with God (laughs) training you to rule and reign. Mm -hmm. And how can you be, how can you be, proven, faithful, unless there are circumstances that you have overcome or you've endured that show that you have passed those tests. Yeah. Oh,
0: my. So, you yeah, can see, here's the I mean, wow, there's some tight logic there, Um, not based on a clear passage. So, uh, so here's the idea. God wants you to rule and reign. Well, pff, Well, you better prove yourself able to do. He wants you to practice. So you better start ruling and reigning over some things, you know. Um, (laughs) I'm the king, you you can be like Yertle the turtle, you know, you can get up high and I'm the king of the pond, you know, and, and then go up a little higher and I'm the king of the rock and the, and the pond and the tree, you know, so, so so you practice reigning over things.
1: Good night. Uh, you know, I don't know if you remember the scripture passage. It says that 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 some enemies were left in the promised land that the future generations would learn how to do war. Yeah. You know, somehow it seems like every 40 years, a new generation has to arise. That one generation.
0: Yeah, that's just the normal course of human events and the shortness of human life.
1: nation ...really goes in and changes things in their nation or in their families, but after a while, things deteriorate again, and the next generation...
0: Yeah, actually, this television program is an actual symptom of that deterioration. I think you're one of the people left here so that we can learn to do battle with false teachers. I'm glad you pointed that out to us, but um, I can't handle listening to any more of this nonsense all right we are up on our second break when we come back we're going to end off with three good easter sermons again the point of all of this is to get your trained for what you should be listening for a good easter sermon for so that you're ready for next week with the bad easter sermon so stay tuned we'll be right back got some great stuff on deck for you coming up we'll be right back
9: you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're
5: listening to Fighting for the Faith.
1: This is the
7: air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. (laughs) The spring and summer
0: travel seasons are just around the corner and the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash Cheap. That web address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash chief. Thank you for your support.
7: Oh, hey. I didn't hear you come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico-Pon with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it.
0: Okay. Back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Not much to review here. Just play it. Alright, let's do this right. Here we go. Here at Fighting for the Faith We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service We have three sermons on deck today For our end of the Easter week Easter sermon series that we've been doing The first comes to us via Hope Lutheran Church In Aurora, Colorado Pastor Brian Wolfmuller And his sermon entitled He's Out and He's After You And then we're going to switch gears We're going to switch gears And I'm going to play for you a good Easter sermon, and the reason it's good is because of its content, not particularly because of its fantastic delivery, although it's delivered well. And then, you know, and that second one will actually be coming to us from Concordia Lutheran Church in uh, Kansas, and uh, uh, Pastor Mark D. Lovett is the pastor who delivered the sermon, and it's on the Gospel of Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. And then to end off the program, we will be going to Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington, and listening to Pastor Ernie Lassman. Again, Lassman is a soft-spoken guy. Just great content, nothing flashy, nothing showy. And his sermon entitled, The Resurrection of Jesus Christ. That will end out our good sermons for this year regarding good Easter sermons. And I hope that you find them edifying. Uplifting and comforting as they point you to Christ and Him crucified and raised again from the grave for your justification. All right, I'm going to kill the music here. So, without any further ado, here is our first sermon, and it's Pastor Brian Wolfmuller and his sermon entitled, He's Out and He's
3: After You. Christ is is risen. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Dear saints, Jesus is out. The tomb is empty. He's loose. And He's after you. Like a lion escaped from the zoo. And it could be right to run, to be a bit afraid of this, because after all, people, at least normal people, stay put. When you put them in the grave, they stay there. But Jesus is no normal man. He's God in the flesh, in your humanity. God become your brother. And now, having suffered all the things that you deserve on the cross, God become your Savior. So your sin and your death and your suffering, the wrath of God, your grave, all of these things Jesus has taken for himself. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. All of this cross and this suffering and this grave, it should be yours. Or better, you should belong to them because you, after all, are a sinner. Born a slave to sin, you are dying. You are deserving of God's anger and God's wrath. Now, there is a danger that we pass over this too quickly. We perhaps have to get this point just briefly, dwell here for just a bit. Because if we don't understand this, that we deserve God's wrath, then the cross and therefore the resurrection make no real sense. So, Paul describes you, Paul the Apostle, describes you like this in Ephesians. We were, by nature, children of wrath. Which means that we were born sinners, or born despicable to God, born offensive to His holiness. We were born fit for nothing other than hell. And that we don't know this, or don't feel it, that we're tempted to think of ourselves that we are pretty good people, shows us only how deep the sickness goes. It's like the person who feels pretty good right before they had a Heart attack. They might have felt pretty good, but they were sick. So, no matter how you feel, you are a sinner. But that's the business of the cross. It's what Jesus is taking care of in His suffering and His death. Your sin, yours, was piled on Him. And the suffering that you deserve is piled on Him. Your death and your hell were heaped upon His shoulders. And there on the cross, it is finished. And now He's loose. Death was not strong enough to hold him. He burst through these iron bars of death, broke apart the bonds of the grave, tore loose from the grip of the devil, and he's out. He's risen. He's alive. He is resurrected. And, dear saints, he's after you. What are we to do with a man who won't stay dead? Perhaps the question, the better question, is this. What is a man who can't stay dead going to do with us? And this, is, dear friends, is the question that defines our life and defines our death. And the answer is this. The one who can't stay dead, the one who is after you, this man loves you and he forgives you and he befriends you and he speaks kindly to you. Because this Jesus who is dead and raised, this Jesus who is after you, is after you with his resurrection. He is pursuing you with his life. He is chasing you down with his forgiveness. He is coming to you with his truth, tearing away the delusions and the lies and comforting you with his love and with his promises and giving you life. Jesus is after you, but he's after you with the gifts of the cross, seeking you like a good shepherd who leaves the flock to find the wandering sheep, and finding this sheep, finding you, lifts you on his shoulders and carries you to safety. He seeks you to save you, to rescue you, to bring you to his eternal dwelling where the angels are singing without end. This is the one who's after you. Now, it's true. That the devil is also after you, tempting you, troubling you. But dear saints, what of it? Jesus has stomped the devil under His feet. Jesus descended into hell and preached a sermon to the devil, a sermon of His own victory on the cross. Jesus is risen. He is broken free from the devil's grasp. He's made a public spectacle of the devil in His cross and in His empty tomb. Jesus is the stronger one. And He has taken the cords that the devil used to bind you, the cords of the fear of death, and He's ripped them off of you and used them to bind up the devil and looted His house that is the grave. The devil is after you, but the devil has already lost. Jesus is risen, and he's alive. It's also true that death is after you. But, dear saints, what of it? Jesus. Your Jesus has triumphed over the grave. He has punched death in the mouth and knocked out all of its teeth. Jesus has made a way straight through the grave so that He, that we with Him will come out the other side. Remember the picture of this. Imagine yourself standing in a line. It's a particularly long line and it just so happens that everyone in the world is in this line and this line is leading to a curtain. And as you get closer to this curtain that you have to step through, that's where the line leads, you start to see some shadowy figures, some sort of action happening behind the curtains. And the more that this line progresses, the closer that you get, you can start to make out what's actually happening behind the curtain. There's some sort of wicked malice. St- malice-filled strong man standing there on the other side of the curtain and he has in his hands a massive mallet and whenever anyone walks through the curtain this wicked man swings the mallet and knocks him in the head and they crumble down into a pile and they're dragged off. And this is frightful. And the closer you get the shorter the line gets the more frightful it gets. But then you see up front someone cut into line, which is astonishing because everyone in line is trying to figure out how to get out, right? (laughs) Someone up front cuts into the line, and he walks through the curtain. And just like everyone else, the mallet is dropped on his head, and he crumbles to the ground in a heap. But before the demons can come and drag him off, this one stands back up. And he looks at the wicked man holding the mallet and he takes the mallet from his hand and smashes him on the head. And as the devil falls over in a heap, he takes the mallet of death and tosses it onto him and now behind the curtain you see the shadow of your Jesus with arms stretched out waiting for you. And now this line can't move fast enough. Death is after you, but what of it? O oh, grave, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But praise God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus. This one has risen, has conquered the grave, has destroyed the devil, and has forgiven your sins. The tomb is open. Jesus is out, and he is after you, and this is your comfort. And you should know, dear saints, that every time you take your Bible and you open it, you're letting Jesus out. And he's after you. Every time the veil is taken off of the altar, Jesus is out. And he's after you. Every time you come to church, every time you hear the gospel, the one who came out of the grave is coming for you. And this is good news. It is the best. Because this Christ is risen, he's alive. He comes for you. And he's found you. He has forgiven you. He has called you his friend. So for us who rejoice in the cross and empty tomb of our Lord Jesus, for you on the last day, your grave, it will be as empty as his. And your life will be as eternal as his. And your joy will be as full as his because Jesus is your life and he is your joy and he is your confidence and he is your resurrection forever and ever. Amen. Christ is risen. He is risen
0: indeed, Hallelujah. He's risen indeed, Hallelujah. All right, sermon number two comes to us via Concordia Lutheran Church in Hoisington, Kansas. Pastor Mark D. Lovett presiding, and um, it, there's no name for this sermon. As you listen to it, uh, even the audio isn't you know crisp and clear, and you know and all that type of stuff doesn't matter. The content is solid. The delivery is solid. There's nothing flashy, nothing showy. This is just God's Word proclaimed properly, soberly, soundly by a faithful pastor who wants to proclaim Christ and the implications of what the resurrection really means regarding its impact on human history. So here is Pastor Mark D. Lovett. In his Easter sermon, here we go.
6: In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Christ is risen. hallelujah. Hallelujah. Human history has ended, it is dead and gone. It's gone because human history must end in death. We know this both from history, and how the history of whole peoples have disappeared because they have died out, as well as even the death of a friend, who when he or she dies, ends our history with them. The history of mankind ends in death. It is finished. So man's history ending in death, and that is why man seeks immortality outside of himself. That is why man seeks to build monuments to his life, to be immortal, not in body and soul, but in work and remembrance and achievement. Even our life insurance and policies and our trust funds speak to our need to try and be immortal, to try and take care of those that we might leave behind, to have a lasting effect on the world around us, on those we love, to outlive our death, But everything of man has come to naught. The ancient civilizations, as great as they were, such as Babylon the Great with its hanging gardens, and Nineveh, a city so large in its time that it took three days to walk across it, Egypt of the pharaohs, the empire of Genghis Khan, even the mighty temple of Jerusalem, have all fallen and come to rubble. They are accomplishments only for history books, and the history channel. They all fall victim to the words of King Solomon, everything is vanity. There is a chasing after the wind. There is nothing new under the sun. And history repeats itself, as the saying goes. And kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. But even in the repetition of rising and falling empires and kings, man has always waited and yearned for something greater, something nobler, something everlasting. Rome summed it up with the phrase, for the glory of Rome. It is interesting that none of the Caesars or Senators ever thought that Rome was actually in the glory of Rome. The glory of Rome was always something to be sought after, an ideal never quite realized. So Rome sought immortality and nobility in her strength and her military might to try and conquer the world by its army. So to the Greeks the two great civilizations the time Christ walked the earth. Where Rome thought to conquer the world with military might, Greece thought to conquer the world with Athens. Dialectic thought, arguing, and words. Rhetoric. These two great kingdoms trying to be immortal in their events and in their actions. And yet both Rome and Athens lie in ruin. And what remains is only a shadow. And not even a shadow of what they were, but merely a shadow of what they wanted to be. Because they never achieved what they wanted to be. Rome never conquered the world. The Visigoths saw to that. And Athens, for all its intelligence, was done away with as Rome rotted from the inside out. They could not outlive themselves. And they ended this one world order with betrayal, fire, and chaos. Man's greatest attempt at glory and immortality ended in what is known as the Dark Ages, a fitting history of man. But though it was the end of the history of man, it was not the end of man. On the third day, the friends of Christ, coming at daybreak to the place, found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder, but even they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. And what they were looking at was the first day of a new creation, with a new heaven and a new earth. And in the semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden, not in the cool of the evening, but of the dawn. The Christ that was born in the cave under the earth, where animals were housed, is the man we born in the cave under the earth, where the dead are housed. From darkness comes light. From death comes life. From a virgin comes a child. And from the tomb comes the man of victory. From mortality comes immortality. Christ is risen from the dead. And the new era has dawned. The new time has come. Not like the old, for the old is gone. Gone in the rising and falling of so many empires and kings. Here is the everlasting king of the everlasting kingdom. Now a ruler has come who has dominion over death, not in his military strength or in his wisdom or knowledge, but who's overcome death in himself, for he is the life of the world. Now comes the king who conquers not only other nations and kingdoms, but the one who conquers death itself. Here is the fulfillment of what man has searched for and looked for. Here is what the Eastern Magi came to seek in Bethlehem, the one who would bring salvation to mankind. Here is what the Queen of the South sought in the wisdom of Solomon. Only now there is something greater than Solomon. Here is what the Caesars tried to find on the battlefield and what the Greeks tried to grasp in the mind and in books. Here is the everlasting Lord, King of Kings. His are time and eternity, world without end. But, kingdoms still rise, and kingdoms still fall. And it is expected of the devil, who is so disastrously defeated by the cross of Christ, and so perfectly annihilated on the third day, would bring a rival kingdom to undo or outdo the kingdom of a man from heaven. For since the dawning of the new day when the Lord walked out of death's stronghold, taking death captive and releasing you, the prisoners of the grave, since that day, only one kingdom has risen that might rival the man of heaven. And if not the kingdom of Muhammad, nor the Dalai Lama, or of some far or near eastern sage, because this kingdom that has risen to rival it cannot and does not touch only one race or type of people, just like the kingdom of heaven does not only touch one race or type of people, But this wicked king which scripture calls the whore of Babylon, this wicked kingdom, goes out into all men. It is the kingdom of the Antichrist, the kingdom that the devil has sought to raise, to undo the kingdom of the truth. It is called the kingdom of enlightenment. For no other kingdom, certainly no physical kingdom, has fooled man into so thinking that he may form his own destiny, that he is the master of his own domain, that nothing stops man from accomplishing whatever he wants to accomplish. We still buy the lie that we can do all things without Christ, whether God strengthens us or not. The kingdom of the Enlightenment is the devil's kingdom, a twisted version of reality born out of the dark ages, even as the true light was dawned for all men out of the darkness of the death cave. Like an evil twin, the Enlightenment promises immortality to all who follow her, perhaps not immortality of the body, but of the mind and heart. She promises happiness. We call it the American dream. She promises contentment. We call it retirement. She promises life. We call it health care. She promises no guilt, and we call it live and let live, and don't judge me. She promises freedom. We call it rights. She promises no shame, and we call it tolerance. But this wicked kingdom fails at all of its promises. For in promising immortality, it only gives trust funds that run out. And in promising happiness that we call the American dream, I've yet to meet anyone who has it, who is not looking forward to tomorrow when it might be a bit better. As far as the contingent in retirement, profound silence. As far as health care, no one lives past the grave. As promises of guilt, then why do we hide from one another? As promises live and let live, then why are we so bent on the fact that no one but us knows the truth? As far as no shame, why are we tolerant of that for which our Savior died? This wicked kingdom fails at all of her promises. They are never happy never content, never free of guilt and shame. They always are promised a brighter tomorrow, a future that will be better, but the ugly present never actually seems to go away. Now enter into these dark ages the true king, the true king and ruler of heaven who brings an entirely different kingdom because his kingdom is not of this world, and so is not subject to the failings and stupidity of man, His is a kingdom of an everlasting kingdom, because He is an everlasting King. And He brings light and life and immortality to men. He brings with Him not the promise of life, but life itself, for He is life. He does not merely bring the promise of forgiveness, but forgiveness itself, because He is risen from the dead. He does not merely bring the promise of heaven, but He brings heaven itself, because where He is, there is the throne room of God and the saints of God. Where Jesus is, there heaven is. And he establishes his kingdom, not with the weapons forged by man, but with weapons forged on the cross, by word and spirit. He conquers you with his word, creating in you a new heart, born not of the will of blood of man, but of the will and blood of God. A new heart given to you, not in the enlightenment of men, but in the glory of the knowledge of the face of Jesus Christ, our Lord. He brings you into his kingdom through water mixed with blood and the power of the Spirit, washing the old world of death and decay from you you, and clothing you with garments of salvation. He feeds you not with the dead flesh and meat of animals that barely keeps you alive day to day, but he feeds you with the life-giving flesh and blood that quickens you to life eternal. Human history has ended. And the history of the man Jesus Christ has begun. And you are hidden in him. You are baptized into the new man. The new light. The new world order. That promises peace because Jesus is the prince of peace. That promises reigning on high because Jesus ascended on high. That promises us to be one body. For we cry out to one father. A new life has dawned. And the reign of the eternal king is here. Which has no end. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. In the name of
0: Amen. And last but not least, for our week of good Easter sermons, here is Pastor Ernie Lastman of Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington, and his sermon on the uh, on 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 19 through 26, simply entitled The Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here we go.
2: Grace, mercy, and peace be from God, our Father, and our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our sermon for this morning is based upon our second lesson, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 to 26. It's on the back of your bulletin for further review. My fellow redeemed in Christ, we try so hard to deny it. We try so hard to cover it up. We try so hard to make it look better with flowers and makeup. And if it was in our power, we would stop it from ever happening at all. Of course, I'm talking about death. Even though death is around us all the time, we have a good knack at uh, just deeply ignoring it and denying it. And why is it that we do that? Well, who wants to face death? So we just kind of don't talk about it because we can't change it anyway. So what's the point? And so we often pretend that it doesn't exist. But sooner or later, it comes into our life. If not our own life, then the lives of loved ones and family and friends. Of course, death has been around for a long time, hasn't it? Yes, ever since the Garden of Eden, as Paul reminds us this morning, in Adam all die. Now, can you imagine if one day we woke up, and on the papers and the internet and all over the place, the scientific and medical communities announced that they had found a cure for death. Don't tell me that wouldn't cause a great wave of excitement all over the world. That would be just wonderful. But I assure you that will never happen quite simply because death is not caused by something scientific. Death is caused by something theological. And that is rebellion against God and living for ourselves. And that's why we die. And the reason for that, biblically, is very simple. Sin cuts us off from God, and He's the only source of life. So, If you're cut off from God, there's only death. Do so you see, death should remind us all the time, something's wrong. Something's not right here. But on this Easter morning, we are reminded that God, who is life and who is love, has overcome death. And that brings us to our Easter message for this morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus was dead and buried, no doubt about it. But three days later, he was alive and he's still alive indeed. The Lord is risen and God's people say, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof, the historical demonstrative proof, that dead bodies can indeed live again. If Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, there's no reason for you and me to think that we will be raised from the dead. And if we're, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then the Apostle Paul is right what he says this morning. If in this life only we hope in Christ, we of all people most to be pitied. Yes, if there's no resurrection from the dead, we will be pitied for believing in Jesus Christ. If there is no resurrection from the dead, we are fools for being here this morning. You see, everything hinges on this truth that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He has been raised from the dead. As the angel told the women on that first Easter morning, they must have been stunned. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Luke 24, verse 5. If Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead... What happened to his body? This is very important. This didn't happen in some corner someplace. This was a very public event. This was a very well-known public figure, this Jesus Christ. Everybody knew what happened to him, how he died, how he was buried. Yes, indeed, everyone knew that. And three days later, the tomb was empty. And by the way, there's been no historical argument about that. Oh, people will debate, what does the empty tomb mean? Why wasn't the body there? But nobody argues that the tomb was empty. Not even throughout history have the Jews argued that the tomb was empty. What happened to the body? All the Romans and Jewish authorities had to do was to show the body and then say, look, here's your beloved Jesus. and That would have been the end of Christianity before it even got started. But they didn't produce the body because because they didn't have a body to produce. And don't forget, by the way, the man who wrote these words this morning that we're listening to was a contemporary of Jesus. It's not like he lived hundreds of years later. He lived exactly, precisely at the same time Jesus Christ lived. And Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he could say that because, among other things, he too had seen the resurrected Christ, as he says earlier in this chapter. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me. Chapter 15, verse 8. In other words, not only was the tomb empty, but there were many eyewitness accounts of this resurrected Jesus Christ, and among them, Paul, who writes these words to us this morning. The Lord is risen, and God's people say, So then, where is the body of Jesus Christ now? It is everywhere. Everywhere. How could that be? Because after he was raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, just as we confess in the Creed. Many Christians don't understand what they're saying when they say those things. This means that now the man, Jesus Christ, this human being we call Jesus Christ, now always and fully exercises the very powers of God that he had from the moment of his conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That's what Paul is getting at when he says, for he must reign, he must rule, until he's put all his enemies under his feet. This means that that man, Jesus Christ, just like God, is present everywhere, as he says at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 28, verse 20. And in John's gospel, Jesus says this marvelous thing. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. John 16, verse 33. Now I ask you, who other than Jesus Christ could say such things without being considered mentally deranged? But he could say such things because of who he was. And because on the third day the tomb was empty and he rose from the dead and now he rules over all things. And this has always a wonderful application for you and me. This very same Jesus who loved you so much as to deny his awesome powers as God and humble himself to the point of death for your sins. That same Jesus now rules over all things and watches over you each and every day of your life, so in the midst of problems and heartaches and violence and death, Jesus is with you. The same Christ who died for you is with you. You are not alone because the Lord is risen, and God's people say. So then, on the basis of what we've said thus far, who is to be pitied? (laughs) Certainly not those who believe in Jesus Christ. The ones who are to be pitied are all those who do not believe in him. Why? Because one day, everyone's going to see him. All the arguments will stop one day when he returns to judge the living and the dead. Now, put yourself in the place of a non-believer. It's the judgment day. You're standing before Jesus Christ. Can you imagine how terrifying that day will be? For those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and life and salvation? Because we are reminded in the, in the Bible that when Jesus comes back, he doesn't come back as that humble Jesus we're so familiar with in the Gospels. Oh, no. He comes back in all his powers as God at a he head, as I said, at the moment of his conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. All his power and glory as God and all the angels of heaven with him. Wow. As he says in Matthew's gospel, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Chapter 25, verse 31 and 32. And because they did not trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, there's only one alternative then. If they're not going to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, God will hold them accountable for those sins every sin of thought, word, and deed that they committed from the beginning of their lives to the end of their lives, because they did not want to trust in Jesus dying for them and being forsaken of God for them, they will have to be forsaken of God. They will spend eternity in hell. As Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Chapter 25, verse 41. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, If there's no hell, why should you or I or anyone believe in Jesus? If there is no hell, what has Jesus saved us from? But what does Paul say? Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, verse 24. You see, this is why God wants us to tell as many people as possible about Jesus Christ. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. You should never think that. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He sent Jesus for everybody. Jesus died on that cross for everybody. Jesus loves everybody. God wants everybody to believe in Jesus for forgiveness, life, and salvation. And so I pray God gives you countless opportunities To tell other people about Jesus Christ, who He is, and what He has done, so they too may have hope in Him. Because the Lord is risen, and God's people say? Because all those people who trust in Jesus Christ have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear by all the problems in this life. Nothing to fear in death. Nothing to fear on the judgment day. You do know, I hope, that on the judgment day, not one of your sins will be mentioned. You do know that, don't you? Not one of your sins will be mentioned. Now, that's amazing, isn't it? Think of a sin that really bothers you. That will not be mentioned on the judgment day. Why not? Because Jesus died on the cross for that sin and all of your sins. He has already been punished by God for all of your sins. Your sins have already been punished. Why would you want to punish him again? And so your debt of sin has been canceled in full by the death of Jesus Christ on that cross. And they've all been washed away, of course, in the waters of your baptism. So Paul says to all who trust in Christ, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Because, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. In other words, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is your guarantee that one day you will be raised from the dead. And on that day, death will be no more. Can you imagine that? No more hospitals, no more nursing homes, no more old age, no more death. As Paul says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Then he'll take us to that new heavens and that new earth that God talks about through the prophet Isaiah this morning. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered. Isaiah 65, verse 17. That's your hope and your comfort and your peace and your joy in Jesus Christ. One day you're going to be raised from the dead, and for the very first time see him with your very own eyes. And then go in that new world that he has prepared along with all of your loved ones and your friends who is also trusted in Jesus. Those, Paul says, who belong to Christ. Yes, the Lord is risen and God's people said, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, can you imagine the joy and excitement if I, we woke up one morning and the scientific and medical community said that they announced a discovery for the cure of death? What a story that would be! What joy, what comfort, what hope, what excitement that would bring. That would, story would go viral, as they say these days. How many hits would that one get? But that will never happen. Medicine and science will never find a cure for death. But that's okay. Okay. Because the God of life and love has already given us a cure for death. Jesus Christ, who on that first Good Friday took care of the cause of death, sin. Paying for the sins of the world, which means your sins and my sins have been paid for. And by that death, death itself has been overcome. And how do we know that? Because on the third day, the tomb was empty. Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, he's still alive today, as Paul says, ruling over all things. That means he's watching over you. And one day, he will return, and everyone will see him when he comes to judge the living and the dead. Who then is to be pitied? Certainly not those who trust and believe in him. Because the Lord is risen, And God's people say, Amen, Amen, Amen. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord give you peace that passes all understanding in Jesus Christ, the one who has been raised from the dead. In his name, Amen.
0: Amen. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.